Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As you may know, I have a small child. And when my child was learning to talk, I was struck by the fact that children like to point to things and to count them. One, two, three, wheels on that train. One, two, dogs. There's a sense that they are giving some order to the world that they see, which is no wonder given it must seem so huge and at times overwhelming. Well, today's guest has done something similar. They've taken a numerical approach to the vast and at times overwhelming world of the Tudors. This numbered analysis is great fun and it provokes some fresh thoughts on old friends. It gives us an alternative way to make sense of the 16th century. So today you'll hear about firsts and lasts, number ones and even 007. I'm pleased to welcome Carol Ann Lloyd, host of the podcast British History, Royals, Rebels and Romantics, and author of The Tudors by Numbers, the stories and statistics behind England's most infamous royal dynasty. Carol Ann Lloyd, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you so much for having me. I am delighted to be here. Just the other day, we were talking on your podcast. So now we're sort of doing a switch around and I've got the pleasure of hosting you. So we're going to be talking about your book, The Tudors by Numbers. And I thought I'd start by asking you what inspired you to take this by numbers approach to the Tudor dynasty? Does it offer a way of thinking that a narrative doesn't? And are there any kind of 16th century grounds? Does your research suggest any insights into whether the Tudor dynasty itself was fascinated by numbers? I think they were. I think there is, particularly as we get to the time of John Dee and Queen Elizabeth I, the idea of the closeness between arithmetic and numerology. There was an interest in numbers but I'm not sure mine is quite that philosophical. So I began, not because I'm a math person, but because when I speak about the tutors in the U.S., often the questions people ask or the first things that pop into their minds are about the six wives. Wow, we really had six wives. That's quite fascinating for obvious reasons. And Henry's size is quite fascinating to people. How big was he really? And in the Metropolitan Museum here in New York in the United States, they have two suits of armor of Henry VIII. And you can literally see how much his size increases. The armor, of course, 
had to fit. So unlike the portraits, which could be jazzed up to look better, the armor had to fit. So you can see how much she's growing. But it's not just about, oh my goodness, did he really weigh 400 pounds? But what that meant, what it meant for a man who had been an athlete in marvelous shape with broad shoulders and a narrow waist and was taller than anyone in his court and jousted and rode and hunted to become someone who was so huge he couldn't move around room to room and had to be hoisted onto his horse at great concern for the horse I would think those numbers started to really interest me what was behind them And what really kicked me off, I was looking at the reigns of Mary and Elizabeth, and for the first time, I really considered them together, and it was the final 50 years of the dynasty, 53 to 1603. And that just really struck me, so then I did do a bit of math, and that equals 42% of the dynasty. So 42 became my favorite number, because in this dynasty that we think of with Henry VIII and lots of wives and all of that... 42% of the dynasty is under the rule of a woman. And that's when I thought there must be some other numbers here that can just change the way we look at it, get us to look through a different lens. And that's where I started. So it's a way of illuminating it. And as you say, making us think differently about the period. Now, Hmm. I'm going to not go chapter by chapter with this because I don't want to give away too many spoilers. I hope people are going to buy your book. So instead, I'm going to dip in here and there into some of your numerical analysis, if I may. You have a range of numbers that relate to firsts and lasts. So why does such an accounting method, if you will, help (laughs) give meaning to the Tudor century? One of the things I found in terms of firsts is often we forget about Henry VII and start with Henry VIII. And so I did think it was important to really look at that as a first and to see what he did in his first moments as king and actually when he dated his reign as the first day of his reign. He dated his reign the day before the Battle of Bosworth. That was really important to him. He was already king, and that made Richard III, in fact, the traitor, and everybody who fought with Richard III was a traitor. So that idea of a first was, I thought, important, that he was the first and that he played with that idea of the first. And then the first time he really leaned into using that red rose we so associate with him was actually after he became king, and it was a retroactive PR campaign. So I thought that was an interesting way to look at some firsts. Then when we come to Edward, who turns out, despite Henry VIII's attempts to be the last king, as he is realizing he's not going to live long enough to have a son, and he is desperately casting about, he's really the last male as well, because he doesn't have options to leave the throne to another Protestant man. He wants to leave it, of course, to a reformer who will carry on his religious work, but he wants to leave it to a man or at least a child who's a male, even if it's a baby boy, there aren't any. The last male monarch is early on. And despite all the attempts, that's what happens. There are nine women Edward can choose from among, but no men. And so those are the kinds of things I do think are fun to look at the firsts and the lasts in terms of how this monarchy gets put together. And then again, the last 
50 years are women on the throne. That's what takes the dynasty into the next century, just barely, but it gets it there. That's how it ends. It ends with these two women. And I think that's also extraordinary when you think about monarchy had always been male up to that point. And a 50-year final female rule is pretty significant. It certainly is. And I think it's so interesting, this point you raise about Edward's heirs, that we have no less than nine women who could have been heirs to the throne. And also, let's note his innate patriarchy, as so many men at the time, he thinks that even a newborn male boy is a better ruler than an adult woman. Anyway, was this number of all-female heirs recognised as significant at the time, or is it just with the benefit of hindsight that we see having so many female heirs as so remarkable? I don't know that the number nine was significant at the time, but I think as you look at the two versions of his device, when he's initially trying to leave the throne to the male heir of either Francis or Jane or her sisters, you know, he's really trying hard, again, imagining even if it's a boy. And so he lists all these women who might be able to have a son. And that's his goal, is that someone produces a baby boy and then he will be content. So I think not the nine women, but the fact that there are zero baby boys coming along is significant. And he's really trying hard to figure out a way. He's not alone in that. Certainly, Dudley and others are at his side and none of them are able to find a baby boy. So you can sense the desperation and the extraordinary disappointment. And part of that is... Because, of course, Henry VIII had gotten rid of other male relatives were considered dangerous. So they didn't get to hang out for too long. Absolutely. And the other first and end that you sort of bookend the Tudor dynasty with are, of course, Elizabeth I as an ending point, but Margaret Beaufort as the first. And are these your bookends because they sort of hold up the entire shelf? Or do they sort of represent something more sizable about the dynasty itself? I think they do. I think in both cases, we have these remarkable women. And again, my bias is to look often for the women who, without Margaret Beaufort, there wouldn't have been a Tudor dynasty. But her ability to play both sides, to be so pragmatic that she could keep herself, of course, easily in favor when the Lancastrians were at the helm in the ongoing Wars of the Roses. But even under a Yorkist monarch, she was much of the time in favor to the point where she received and had Edward IV visit her at her home. She was the hostess. And even in the reign of Richard III, initially, she carried during the coronation, she carried the gown, the cloak of Anne Neville, the queen. And so she's so involved on both sides. And that level of pragmatism, that level of you do what you need to do, I think is very much echoed by Elizabeth. And they are both successful in doing what it takes to play in the court they are given. That's the only court they have. But they are able to play their own game in that court and play it successfully. And I think in both cases, we see that. And I think that those bookends, for me, really represent what it takes to survive 
and what it took to survive as women, and they were both successful at that. There are numbers in your book relating to marriage, and I wonder which you found more illuminating. Is it the count of the betrothals, or is it the sums of stability? I think in some ways, the marriages and also the relationships. So when you look at someone like Elizabeth, who was able to navigate some of the international waters she was in through keeping more than one, much of the time, offer of marriage in play. Right from the start, when it's Philip of Spain and both he and Simon Renard in England, his sort of counterpart, and he's on the ground there. And they're so sure that Elizabeth will be just delighted to accept the proposal of Philip of Spain. She has to let him down gently and make sure that the Archduke Charles is feeling the love and all of this. It's just quite extraordinary that she's able to manage that over years and years. It doesn't have to be a full marriage for her. She keeps all the options open all the time which is quite interesting when you look at that. It's impossible not to compare that in some ways to Mary, Queen of Scots at the same time. Now, her first marriage, yes, is arranged. But after that, Mary, Queen of Scots does shut off opportunities through her marriages. When she marries Darnley, she loses a lot of the support that she had gathered somewhat in Scotland because he was so generally disliked. And so... Does a marriage open or close opportunities? And it can do both. There are some successful marriages. But also, what other than a marriage? So whether it's ongoing courting or a lengthy courtship, like Anne Boleyn, for example, that lengthy courtship was a short marriage, but such a long relationship. So I think sometimes you have to look at a broader scope of those relationships in terms of the numbers and how many Elizabeth kept in play and how much of her reign was spent that way. And before we turn to the six wives of Henry VIII, you remind us that there were six other significant marriages well before Henry himself married. Why do these relationships deserve to be remembered and numbered? The story of six wives is just irresistible. But if we don't look at some of the other important marriages, for example, Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, very much a political marriage, but one that lasts, one that seems to have eventually become a genuine relationship with a lot of concern and care for each other, and one that produces three and four with Arthur, but unfortunately dies young, but these three adult children So we have Margaret Tudor, who had more than one marriage, but that very important one to the King of Scotland, which leads to the birth of Mary, Queen of Scots. Then we have Mary Tudor, and she was married to the King of France. So two daughters of Henry VII both become, now not during his lifetime because Mary was later, but become queen consorts of other countries which would have been very important to him. Of course, Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII, that was also very important. But the relationship, the marriage between Margaret and the King of Scotland showed something about Henry VII's desire to use diplomacy, not just to keep fighting with Scotland. 
Then with Mary Tudor, a short marriage to the King of France, but then when she marries Charles Brandon and has that marriage, comes back to Henry's court, and it is through that marriage that we have the descendants to whom Edward turns, the Grey Sisters. So all of these within the family marriages do produce key players in the story. So I think they're all important, even before we get to those fancy, famous ones. Yes, and I was just thinking today about Mary Tudor, as in Henry VIII's sister, Mary Brandon, and her timely death in terms of numbers dies just before she has to turn up to a coronation she totally disappoints. Yes, yes. If she had to die, that was the moment. And the fact that she didn't support that relationship was, I think, a problem for Henry. And that public non-appearance would have been a problem for Henry. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. I can't resist at least one question on Henry VIII's Queen, so I'm going to ask about Catherine of Aragon. You explain that Catherine is one of the longest-serving English queen consuls, in that she becomes an English queen, at least. Who were the other long-serving consuls? And where, in your opinion, should Catherine be ranked among them? I think Catherine was one of the most beloved. She really was beloved. Although the English people at that time tended to be quite suspicious of foreigners, let's just say, they loved her. And of course, she was a descendant of John of Gaunt. And all of the descriptions of her of the time make her sound like she looked English. I know there are all the depictions in movies. She has dark black hair and dark eyes and dark skin. But the descriptions of her with her golden hair and her fair skin and her blue eyes, she looked very much like an English princess when she was there. And she was so beloved. Another of the lengthy and turned out to be pretty controversial that I'd like to think about is Henrietta Maria. And she, like Catherine, had strong family ties to a foreign nation. In Henrietta Maria's case, it was to France. But they both represented a foreign royal backing that their husbands used in different ways. Now, Henrietta Maria, by getting money from the Catholics in France to fund what her husband wanted to do, really caused so much 
dissension in Parliament and really spoiled her standing and contributed to Parliament rising up against the king. So that was quite a dramatic sense on the other side. But Catherine of Aragon, because of her love by the English people, was able to continue to affect their feelings about Henry and what he was doing. They were loyal to her. They never warmed to Anne. And so I think she was a really significant queen consort. Not only did she last a long time, but she continued to not exert power, but certainly influence over what happened and what was able to happen in terms not only of Henry's relationship with Anne, but the people's perception of Anne and Henry's worries as that relationship is going forward and no son arrives, he may have become more frantic more quickly because Catherine was still there and people were still calling her the true queen. And Anne hadn't been able to produce the son that would have been necessary to claim that title. I think if Anne had a son, that might have helped. But without that, Catherine still had extraordinary influence despite Henry putting her aside and putting her away and trying to keep her out of sight, she was certainly never out of mind. And I think that is an extraordinary example of how she continued to influence right up until her death. Yes, it's so interesting. Two thoughts that provokes in me. One, I saw a family tree the other day that was created in the Tudor period. It's in Lambeth Palace Library, and it has Henry and his two marriages so ah. his marriage to Queen Catherine and then his marriage to Anne Boleyn. And Catherine writes you know, as a note in Latin saying, you know, afterwards dissolved. And then there's Anne. And I think so you're absolutely right. If there had been a boy, that's where it would have ended with regards yes. to his marriages for certain. But then the other thing also is actually I think we can probably chart the influence of Catherine of Aragon even after her death on yes. Jane for example, because Jane mm-hmm. had been one of her ladies-in-waiting and was greatly influenced by her political and religious terms, it seems. More and more, the evidence that's emerging testifies to that allegiance. That's true. And Jane very much wanted to restore Mary to Henry's favour. And that was a way I would think Jane might continue to have served Catherine was by bringing Mary back to court. So yes, her influence. And when Mary, I believe her greatest influence in those first day or two after Jane Grey has been proclaimed queen and Mary never doubted, despite all these people around her, including Charles V, Mary never doubted that she'd get that throne. And I think that was from her mother that Catherine of Aragon had taught her she had every right to be queen. She was the granddaughter of Isabella of Castile, and she had every right to rule that country on her own. And I think Catherine's influence is extraordinary in Mary as well. Yeah, certainly beyond her death, you're right. Completely agree. Another what if you've raised in my mind as well, which is, of course, if Jane had lived, her Mm. influence on Edward would have absolutely tempered the Protestant influence of his uncle and others. Mm -hmm. Talking of Edward, he is perhaps the most overlooked Tudor monarch And he does rule for a relatively short period of time. But he's unique in many respects. But one lesser-known way is that he's the only Tudor monarch that we know of to keep a diary. What does this one chronicle reveal about Edward that may surprise some people? 
So first you would think, oh, he kept a diary. We'll know so much about him. You think of other royal diaries like Queen Victoria's, and we know that was sanitized, but we do really get some of her thoughts and emotions. And so we would look to that, even though Edward was younger. But it's a fairly removed, it's a fairly cold, almost clinical description of what's going on. And one of the famous notations is after his uncle, the Duke of Somerset, is executed. There's just one line, he had his head cut off this morning. And it either reveals that he didn't consider it a private document and perhaps being the king and living at court. And he's also the only one who grew up from the moment he was born expected to be the king. None of the other Tudor monarchs They all eventually became, but they didn't consistently, without a blip, always be expected to rule. And so he was. And so he grew up in a different way and maybe felt like things had to be presented in a little more public way, even in a diary. Or these tendencies, and we do see some sort of harsh, tyrannical tendencies for someone so young, that there was a coldness in him, perhaps even in his private writings, it really was that cold. So we don't really know. There are descriptions of him that are mentioned, but we can't necessarily say are true, where he's in a council meeting and gets so angry and he supposedly rips up a bird or something just awful. And it's only in one place and it may not be accurate and it's hard to pin down. But there are some indications he may just have had a very cold personality and perhaps that's reflected. So I don't think we get the sense of him we would like if you hear someone has a diary and you get all excited about it. Not quite as revealing as we might like or as we might hope. And I think we forget that he's a teenager and no offence to any teenagers listening But there is a certain tendency towards seeing things in black and white when you're going through adolescence. And perhaps he may have emerged with a more moderate view on things a few years later if he had lived a bit longer. He was nine when he became king and had that whole coronation speech from Cranmer about being the young Josiah. And he seemed to just step into that role and never look back. Yes, and that may have been his age. He never really saw life as very complicated. It was all black and white, as you say. And actually, on his religious faith, I remember Dermot McCulloch saying it's easy to be led by an archival accident because we have that one chronicle on his sort of military campaigns and tournaments and that sort of thing. But actually, apparently, several sources report that he listened attentively to sermons and took notes on the sermons in a notebook that is now lost. So there was another one of these pieces of what historians call ego literature that could have given us an insight into Edward, but it doesn't survive. Now, another thing you count is the number of pretenders and rivals for the throne. And this is a period in which there's quite a few. Yes, particularly in weaker moments. When Henry VII comes to the throne through seizing it, from Richard III in battle, despite when he dates it. He's hoping that his marriage to Elizabeth of York will put an end to any thought that we need to keep fighting over the throne because for the previous half a century, it had been York, Lancaster, York, Lancaster, and there were still some pretty strong Yorkist supporters who weren't thrilled to see Henry Tudor. There were also some Lancastrian supporters who maybe thought he wasn't the strongest choice. But in particular, the two pretenders who take him on, Perkin Warbeck and Lambert Simnel, 
did represent, and one thing that's interesting about those two, although they were young men, they had foreign backing. And it demonstrates how all of this isn't happening in a vacuum. Sometimes I think we tend to think, okay, this is all England and England's figuring out who's going to be king. And then there are all these wives and it's just all England. And yet the backing of Scotland or Ireland or Burgundy or France or Spain, all of this, which was available and sometimes was accessible to Simnel and Warbeck and others, even before we get to Mary, Queen of Scots. So it reminds us that it's not happening just on an island that's completely isolated from everybody else. And even on that island, Scotland is right there ready to chime in and help. So Scotland and Ireland were eager, in some cases, to cause problems for Henry Tudor, Burgundy with Margaret of Burgundy, the sister of Richard III and Edward IV, was very happy to back these pretenders and introduce them around. So it does demonstrate the political capital that it took to establish the Tudor dynasty around the world, but specifically in the continent. And then after Henry VIII comes along and makes the break with Rome, which reverberates for many rules beyond there. When we get to Elizabeth and Mary, Queen of Scots, Elizabeth's great rival, the backing again of France and Spain and the Pope and much of Catholic Europe makes Mary an incredibly powerful rival for the throne. The fact that none of the Tudors were toppled from the throne is really quite extraordinary when you think of how many forces were working against them throughout the reign, from the beginning to the end. Well, unless you count Jane, of course. But that happened within. That still wasn't foreign intervention or anything. That sort of happened within. I don't think people dislike Jane. I think they just were ready for Mary. They'd been expecting that. So I thought it'd be fun to draw to a close with a very famous number that people may not connect with the 16th century. So what does the number 007 have to do with the Tudors and how certain can we be of the association? I do love that number as well. What we know is that John Dee, we've mentioned him before, he's really an enigma. He's hard to pin down. And because of that, I think he's fascinating to us But he was also fascinating in his day to other courts. And so he could get into and meet with people because he was maybe a magician or maybe a mathematician or maybe a scientist. Those lines were so blurry and he continued to blur them. So he believed in alchemy and he was doing experiments and he was just really fascinating. And there is some thought that in his travels, he may have been... Spying is perhaps too strong a word, but observing things for the queen. We know we met with Queen Elizabeth. We know they had a relationship. He is, in fact, the tutor of Robert Dudley for a while, her great love, Robert Dudley. And so when Elizabeth and Dudley would write letters to each other, whenever there was a double O in a word, they would write little eyebrows over it, which is this endearing because he's her eyes. So they'd write little eyebrows, very cute. So that idea of double O, some say he got from John D, who used to sign his cipher to Elizabeth when it was for her eyes only 
with those two circles and then a line across, not two little eyebrows, but a line and then a line slants down. If you think of a line across and a line slanting down, that is the number seven. There are two O's and a seven, so 007. Now, we know he studied at Cambridge. We know some of his papers are there and that Ian Fleming did do some studying there and may very well have encountered some of John Dee's studies there. So there is a school of thought that perhaps James Bond is 007. That number 007 came from John Dee. Can we be certain? No, but I think it's certainly possible. I think it does remind us of the connection between John Dee and Robert Dudley, which we do have evidence of. And I do like it as a reminder of the very tenuous and changing and dangerous world that Elizabeth's court was at this time. And I'm actually working on a talk for Smithsonian about the spies and the ciphers and the secrets and all that's going on. And I think it is a good reminder that Elizabeth's court was full of spies and that there were opportunities to overturn or intercept something. And there were steps taken to make sure that the right thing got in front of the right eyes. So whether that exactly is true or not, maybe not. But I do think what's true is that it reminds us of people like Francis Walsingham, who worked so hard to know, to watch, to decipher in order to protect the queen and her rule and how much of that was going on, how uncertain and how dangerous the court really was. And the wrong information in the wrong hands could have been really catastrophic as Mary Queen of Scots found out to her sad end. I don't know if it's true for sure, but it's a good reminder of the scariness of the court. Finally then, having viewed the Tudors through their figures, I wondered if there was a number that was most frequently occurring in your analysis and if you've got any theories about why you think that is. I guess, and this isn't so much a number, but just a reminder that two, there are two, and I don't want to overstate this, but two sexes that were powerful in Tudor times. Yes, men, and we see that, but also women. That there were women who were, like Mary and Elizabeth, willing to fight. They both fought to get their thrones and to keep them, and they did it. They made mistakes. They weren't perfect, but they did it. And if you look at those famous six wives in their own ways, especially Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, they both had an extraordinary influence on Henry. Between the two of them, he spends 70% of his reign with Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. And so they have an extraordinary influence on him, even though he's the king and he's the man. Mm there is a lot of influence on him. And same with Henry VII and Elizabeth of York had a lot of influence on him. So I just felt like overall, even though it was a monarchy as male, very patriarchal in legal, religious, societal terms, that there were women, again, making 
impact on the lives of the court and the people in Tudor England. Hear, hear. Well, this is a really fun way into thinking about the Tudors. And if people want to know more, the book is called The Tudors by Numbers. Carol Ann Lloyd, thank you so much for coming on to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you so much, Susanna. It's been a delight to chat with you. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, and also to my researcher, Esther Arnott, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at NotJustTudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just the Tudors. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.